You're listening to the Redeemer Theological Academy with Pastor Brian Cashelmeyer of Redeemer Lutheran Church, Los Alamos, New Mexico. On the Redeemer Theological Academy, we mine the riches of the Scripture and the Church Fathers and find in them Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer. Here's the Academy with Pastor Cashelmeyer. Welcome back to the Redeemer Theological Academy. Now, in our last lecture, we began to talk about chapter 11 in the Scroll of Isaiah. Now, in this uh, lecture today, we'll continue to unpack what it means that this king comes to bring a spiritual kingdom. Now, we have a lot to talk about, so let's go ahead and get started. So, in verse 2, we read, And the Spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him. Now, again, who's the him? Well, we're talking about the promise of Emmanuel, the Christ child, the one who is born of the house of David, the one who is a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from Jesse's roots shall bear fruit. This is the one that we are to set our eyes upon. This is the one that we are to look for. The spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. So you have the sevenfold gifts of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself and these gifts of the Spirit, wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of Yahweh. So this is the one that we are to look for, the one upon whom the Holy Spirit rests. Now, of course, according to his divine nature, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, the only begotten word from all eternity, has no need of the Holy Spirit to rest upon him. Because remember, as we confess, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, so that by his divine nature, he already has the Holy Spirit. He is one with the Holy Spirit in this divine essence, that he is co-essential of the same substance. But now, according to his human nature, being born of the house of David, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from Jesse's root, according to this human nature, the Holy Spirit now rests upon him. And we see this, of course, in the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River, in which the Holy Spirit descends in the visible, tangible form of a dove. Now, of course, throughout uh, Isaiah's uh, scroll, you see this emphasis upon this one, the one who is Emmanuel, the one who is El Gabor, mighty God, the one who is truly God with us, but yet also truly man, the one who becomes a servant, although he is in the form of God, he does not consider this equality with God something to be grasped and held on to but he empties himself to take the form of a servant. And thus you have later on Isaiah 42, where the father says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So when we look at this passage, we understand according to his human nature, the Spirit of Yahweh rests upon him. And so, 
according to his human nature, he then gives the Holy Spirit to the rest of, of humanity. He's the source. The one upon whom God sets his seal, his approval, is the one who gives the Holy Spirit without measure. And so now, as he is anointed, as he is now the Christ, he is the Messiah. He is anointed with the Holy Spirit to bring good news to the poor of the Jews and justice to the Gentiles. Now, as the Holy Spirit rests upon him, you also have these gifts of the Spirit, the varieties and gifts of activities of the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament scriptures in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we learn about the, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. And Paul writes in chapter 12 saying this, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing, by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And in this passage in Isaiah, we understand that according to his human nature, the only begotten Son of the Father is now born of the Virgin, and the Holy Spirit rests upon him, so that he has these variety of gifts that are unique to this office of Christ, to be the King who brings the eternal kingdom, the one who brings righteousness and justice to humanity. Thus he has wisdom and understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of Yahweh. Now Isaiah goes on in chapter 12 at verse 3 saying this, His delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And when we look at chapter 11 of Isaiah, we cannot disconnect it from the flow from chapter 7. Remember in chapter 7 we have the promise of Emmanuel. And then into chapter 8 they call upon Emmanuel in the day of trouble. In chapter 9 you have this promise of the one who is going to be given to us as a son, a child who will be born for us, and he will be mighty God. And then, of course, in chapter 10, you have this understanding that the remnant will come back to El Gabor, mighty God. And so Cyril of Alexandria, the early church father, he notes that Emmanuel will be born, but what we have here in chapter 11 are those things that will identify him for us. These gifts of the Holy Spirit, for the Holy Spirit will rest upon him. He will be a new 
David. And not just a different David, but the true David. The one who will bring in an eternal kingdom. A spiritual kingdom in which he reigns by his word. And so in this kingdom, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And so this understanding of judging and deciding, he does this with his instruction, the very word of God. He knows and he does what the will of the Father is. And so it's not about uh, the human experience and the imagination of the heart, but rather his will is the Father's will. Now, this is not what takes place in earthly kings who are to be God's representatives on earth, but yet then do their own will in contradiction to God's will. Now, remember back in Isaiah chapter 2, we were told about this coming kingdom, this kingdom of God on earth, this mountain that would rise up higher than all the other kingdoms and mountains of earth. In Isaiah 2, you have this understanding that this king shall judge between the nations, and he shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. So that whole image that we had in Isaiah chapter 2 was in this kingdom, this kingdom will bring peace between God and humanity, creator and fallen creation, that this kingdom will bring life where there is death. So there will no longer be any bloodshed. There will no longer be fighting in war. There will only be life. Now, back in Deuteronomy chapter 10, we have this understanding of Yahweh being the king who does these things. In Deuteronomy 10, Yahweh your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So this is what Yahweh does as king, and this is what Yahweh will do as the incarnate king, the son of David. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 19, we have the image of the king who shall return, and he shall return in judgment, for he judges in righteousness. So that uh, you have John saying that this is what he saw, heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And so this whole uh, end times, everything that comes to a culmination in the last day is when he comes again to judge the living and the dead. And this idea of making war is he will prevent all these other kingdoms who are trying to prevent his kingdom from coming. He will put all of these temporary kingdoms to an end and they will be no more. They will make way for the eternal kingdom, the kingdom of God, which alone will be remaining and which alone God himself will be exalted as king. But this king, being very God, judges differently than any earthly king does. He alone judges correctly and truly, not by the external outward appearance, but what he knows in the inside, in the heart. 
you, you see this in Matthew chapter 22, that this whole question about Jesus is being brought to the table. And in 22, Matthew writes, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. So even in Matthew 22, you note that the the teachers, the people of God, the leaders, they recognize something different in Jesus. And so what should have taken place is this should have been a red flag for them. This should have been an indicator that the promises of Isaiah are being fulfilled before their own eyes. For this one in righteousness shall judge. He shall decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And they know something's different about him, yet they refuse to listen to him and reject him as king. But this this passage goes on in Isaiah that he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Now, this is an interesting passage because you have this connotation of peace, that he comes to bring peace, but the peace he brings is not like the peace of the world. It is the peace between God and fallen creation, that now there's a reconciliation in his person and work. But yet at the same time, he is not only king, but he is judge, and he shall judge the living and the dead, and his judgment is true. And so when Jesus talks about how he has come to bring peace, it's not the peace of earth. So you'll see this in Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And so again, it's not an earthly peace. It's not a peace in which these earthly kingdoms just stop fighting against each other by their own will and their own ability. Instead, it is this heavenly kingdom, a peace between the individual and the creator. And in this, you have the reconciliation, the forgiveness of sins, and no longer is death this enemy that can overtake us. He defeats death in his resurrection. And so the peace that he brings is the peace between the individual and the judge, who is God, who God alone judges in justice and righteousness and gives the right judgment. And so this is why Jesus comes to bring the right judgment, so that he is our justice. He's the one who brings justice to humanity when he dies on the cross and the atoning sacrifice, so that God can be both the just judge and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ, so that those who are in Christ are a new creation. There is no condemnation because the punishment has fallen upon Christ. And so in Christ, our judgment, we have the verdict of not guilty. But yet when Jesus comes to bring this news, this good news, this message of peace, those who refuse to hear this peace pick up the sword against him and fight and try to prevent his kingdom from coming. And so the the image then is that he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Now, of course, uh, Martin Luther, when he's uh, the blessed reformer, when he's commenting on this, says the rod of his mouth is the spoken word. 
so that his kingdom comes not with a physical sword, but with the spiritual sword, which, of course, is the very word of God, in which he comes to slay the enemy. That is, put to death the old sinful human nature and arise it again to newness of life by bestowing the Holy Spirit so that one can rightfully hear and see and believe. Now, in the book of Revelation, we have this image of the sword coming from his mouth, this word, the word that both brings death to the sinful uh, nature, but also brings life to the believer. So in Revelation chapter 1, when he comes again, in his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So this sword comes from his mouth. This is the word that he speaks. In Revelation 2, it goes on to say, And the messenger of the church, and to the messenger of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And then chapter 2 goes on, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name, written on the stone so that no one knows except the one who receives it. So again, this connection between Isaiah and the book of Revelation is that he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And you see this in Revelation chapter 19. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And the passage goes on in verse 21, And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And this whole language of, of a sword coming from the mouth with the rod and, of course, with the breath. Now, I continue to use the word breath because technically that's how we typically see this translation. But let us be clear that in the Hebrew, it's really the Ruach, the Spirit. Now, of course, Ruach can be translated as spirit or breath or wind or these different possibilities. But understand the connection here is it's the rod from his mouth. It is the Spirit of his lips. There's a direct correlation between the Holy Spirit being active in the spoken word. So the Holy Spirit comes from his lips because you cannot separate the word of God from the spirit of God. When God's word is spoken, the Holy Spirit is there active, actively doing the will of God. The law, of course, brings judgment and death to the sinner, whereas the gospel, the good news about Christ, brings forgiveness and life. 
So this is the same Spirit who works in both ways, in both law and gospel, bringing death to the sinner and also bringing life to the saint, the one who has faith in Jesus, the one who is justified. Now, going back to Isaiah chapter 11 at verse 5, the, the prophet continues by saying, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This king is the perfect king, the one who is dressed in righteousness and faithfulness and justice and brings this about in his kingdom. He has wisdom and understanding and counsel and knowledge, and he brings this about in his kingdom. He has might in the fear of Yahweh, and he brings this about in his kingdom. As St. Paul will write in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, telling the baptized and reminding them, because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He is the wisdom of God, and he becomes our wisdom. He's the righteousness of God, and he becomes our righteousness. Now back to Isaiah chapter 11, the evangelist Isaiah continues to write in verse 6, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Now in this picture we have the restoration of creation. There will be no death. I mean, you understand the wolf, lying down with the lamb, they're dwelling together, the wolf does not eat the lamb, or the lion who is dwelling there together with the fattened calf, the lion does not eat the fattened calf. And so this whole understanding of what they're eating has changed. Instead of eating each other and feeding on the life of each other, they are given life and they have a completely different meal. They're nourished in a different way. They now eat straw. They all become vegetarians, if you will. <laughs> there's there's no death. And so you do not eat meat. You don't have others dying so that you can live. Now, the early church father Eusebius, when he sees this passage describing for us in picture language the restoration of creation using animals, Eusebius sees this language of eating differently having to do with the nourishment that comes from the divine scripture. And so he sees this as a picture of all these different types of animals who had animosity towards each other coming together, as so those who are in the church. You have both for Eusebius, the noble, the rich, and the poor. You have a gathering together from every race. So all these different types of animals for Eusebius is depicting all the different types of races of humanity so that creation is being restored and humanity that has now been brought back together after that disbursement since the days of the Tower of Babel. Now, about a century or generation later, you have Cyril of Alexandria seeing kind of this same picture language in 
food and eating. So Cyril of Alexander will say the food is the preaching of the gospel. And so those who are being nourished have a different diet. And so now you are feeding, you become hungry for righteousness, thirsty for righteousness, and you're being fed by the gospel. So Cyril looks at the picture and tries to pick apart the different components. And he'll say, you have the distinction between a calf and a bull, which means the young and the old. So you have both the young and the old who are in the kingdom, who have been converted to Christ. Uh, you, Cyril will look and he'll also say, now notice there's, there's domesticated animals that are tamed by the law, like the Jews who had the law of Moses, while there are savage wild animals who've been converted to this food of the tame animals, that is like the Gentiles, who were not feeding on God's word, but who have now been brought out of darkness into light and now have a different diet. So now they eat just like the domesticated animals who had the Torah, the instruction, the written scriptures of God. Of course, later on, way into the 16th century, the blessed reformer Martin Luther kind of continued on this same path of seeing this as a picture of the new creation and of the people of God. So Luther sees in this picture those in the church who have been converted through the preaching of the gospel. And like Cyril before him, he tries to pick apart at this picture. And Luther says the leopards are like the tyrants who had persecuted. The lions are like the rich who preyed upon the poor. But now everything has changed. So that Luther says the tyrant will become a martyr. And a wolf will become a teacher. Now, of course, remember, wolves are are used as the image of a false teacher, like Jesus does in Matthew chapter 7. In fact, Luther notes that the apostle Paul, before his conversion, was a wolf. He was Saul, the rabbi. And so Luther will look at this, that the wolves were those who were false teachers, who now become true teachers, and that these lambs are the Christians, of course, the sheep who hear the voice of the shepherd. For Luther notes, this is exactly what God's word does. It casts down the proud and lifts up the lowly. So all three of these theologians in the past, when they're looking at this passage, they notice this change, this conversion, this changing of creation from how it how it is currently in the fallen state to in this renewed state in the new creation. That those who were savage predators now become like the domesticated animals with a different diet. Now going back to the scroll of Isaiah in chapter 11, the prophet Isaiah continues by writing, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. And so this is what Isaiah writes here in chapter 11. And of course, there's an echoing of what we heard back in Isaiah chapter 2 about his holy mountain, his kingdom being spread throughout the earth, and this knowledge of Yahweh, the knowledge of salvation, will be given to those who were formerly in 
darkness. They are now brought into his kingdom of light. Now, when Isaiah uses the image of a, a child, uh, Martin Luther continues trying to pick apart at this picture. And Luther will say that the child is like the preacher, the one who preaches Christ. And so you draw your attention to like John chapter 13, where Jesus says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. So here Jesus is talking to these apostles as little children. And so Jesus will go on in John 13 and say, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so what Luther is looking at is this child here is now one who can tread upon the serpent. The serpent, of course, being uh, the devil, those who try to prevent God's kingdom from coming. And these little children are the, the apostles of Jesus, the ones who go out to proclaim this good news and to step on these serpents who try to prevent the kingdom from coming. So thus the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Well, these are similar to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus is talking to his disciples, to the ones he's going to send out his apostles, and says this, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Redeemer Theological Academy. For more episodes or to leave comments about this show, please visit our website, RedeemerTheologicalAcademy.org. Again, that's RedeemerTheologicalAcademy.org. Thanks for listening. And may our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, continue to be your life and salvation, your hope and your peace.